Well, Father, we are thankful that we can come before you today and learn about your word. And I thank you for these young people who want to know how you want us to see the world that you have created. We know that uh, this world is under the power of the evil one, that Satan is the father of lies, and he um, has deceived the world in many ways. And as we pursue a biblical view of truth, and in this case of sexuality, that we will be undeceived and see the beauty of what you have designed. Uh, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, yesterday our conference started, but there was another conference that ended at one North Point Community Church under the leadership of Andy Stanley. You guys ever heard of Andy Stanley? Okay, well, he's probably, and I don't think I'm exaggerating saying this, J.D., you can probably verify this, he's probably the most famous pastor in the country, right, or one of the most influential ones. His father is Charles Stanley, who had a national ministry in his own right, and at his church, he hosted something called the Unconditional Conference, okay, it's called the the Unconditional Conference, and it's described as a two-day event for parents of LGBTQ plus parents. And, and, and this is what you would read on the website as they're promoting it. You will be equipped, refreshed, and inspired as you hear from leading communicators on topics that speak to your heart and soul. And then it adds, no matter what theological stance you hold, we invite you to listen, reflect, and learn as we approach this topic from a quieter middle space. Now at this conference, there's a number of speakers who are actually in active gay marriages. Uh, there's a scholar who famously changed his mind on the issue, and this is being hosted at one of the most uh, influential, one of the largest evangelical churches uh, in the country. And I think it, it speaks to really the future of where we're going regarding this issue that is really uh, starting to split churches down the middle. Many denominations have split over this, and, and standing firm is increasingly difficult. I know that when I share the gospel, it's guaranteed that this issue will come up. I was sitting on an airplane, and I was sharing the gospel with a, with a young man, and he asked me, well, what about homosexuality? And so what I did was I took out my Bible. I took him to Romans chapter 1. I just said, I want you to read this verse out loud. He said, okay, Romans 1, 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And you know what he said after that? He said, that's actually pretty clear, right? Both forms of homosexuality are mentioned. It's women with women. You can't necessarily talk about rape and domination in that case. He just said it's, it's very clear. And so how do people push back on that? Have you guys ever heard the term clobber verse? Okay, a clobber verse is basically what we call an ad hominem attack on these passages. You don't try to figure out what it means, you just attack it, and you say there's only six of these so-called clobber verses in the Bible, and these clobber verses have been used to clobber gays and homosexuals. Now we all know that, you know, 
uh, homosexuals have a certain amount of self-loathing. I'm speaking on their behalf. There's higher rates of gay suicide. And when you give them these clobber verses, you're not showing them the love of Christ. You're acting like Fred Phelps. Right? Fred Phelps was the infamous pastor from uh, Topeka at Westboro Baptist Church who really did not do the evangelical world any favors. He had vile protest against uh, homosexuals, very unredemptive, very unkind, very mean. And, and frankly, you know what? A lot of homosexuals have been um, bullied. Uh, they have been belittled. They have been excluded. Uh, I don't want to diminish their suffering at, at all. And a lot of it is by Christians who do clobber them with the Bible. And so that is why many Christians are trying to come up with this third way. And they will say, you know what, what if this is just an agree to disagree issue? You believe that the Bible doesn't sanction gay marriage or homosexual acts. I believe it does. Can we, can we all agree that we both love Jesus, love the gospel, and move on, right? And I think that's, that's going to be the tactic that we're going to see out of churches like North Point Community Church, right? We're all saved. We all love Jesus. We just disagree on this issue. Now, here's the problem with that. We are saved by grace through faith alone, right? And part of faith is a turning away from our sin towards Jesus Christ, right? You can't worship Baal and Yahweh, right? You can't uh, be actively committing adultery, per se, and still say, I became a Christian, my life has changed, as you carry on with your, your mistress. You see, at the heart of this issue is, does the Bible have the authority to define sin? Does the Bible have the authority to define sin? Because if you can redefine sin, do you know what else you redefine? You redefine repentance. And you can say, you don't need to turn away from your sin to become a Christian, and that is a damning heresy. And and this really is the point of attack in our culture. And, and, And... Attack from without, it, it, there's nothing new under the sun. It's happened ever since the beginning. You look at all of Paul's letters. I mean, he is pushing back against some doctrine that might de- uh, deny the, the body of Jesus Christ or try to import Jewish works into uh, the gospel message. The early church went to mortal combat over the issues of the Trinity. During the Protestant Reformation, there was a fight over the very nature of the gospel. At the turn of the 20th century, there was a war about whether or not the supernatural actually happened. Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? The Bible, did God actually speak the Bible into existence through, uh, through the people that he inspired? Uh, around the 60s and 70s, 1960, 1970, there was, a, there was a war about biblical authority. Does the Bible have mistakes? Does it have errors? Uh, in the 80s and 90s, when I kind of grew up, can the Bible speak exclusively to issues where people all thought truth was relative. And in this day and age, the number one issue with the Bible is the morality of the Bible. People are convinced that the Bible is an immoral book. And it is seen most clearly in the eyes of this culture in its esteem and treatment of the homosexual community. Now, that whole idea of a homosexual community is really a modern phenomenon. Right there, there was a. Uh, I had a, a moment of realization when I was at KU some 30 years ago. That's right. 
And now I still see myself as like just a dude. Then I realize I'm a dude with college students. You know, it's I'm I'm a dad now. I haven't grown the mustache. I haven't embraced all that, but I've I've embraced the dad jokes. <laughs> but as I was there, I remember there was a coming out of the closet ceremony. You'd have a bunch of people sit down, and somebody would stand up behind a microphone and kind of give their story about when they discovered they were gay. And then they would put it down, and there was actually a, a door frame, okay? After they gave their testimony, they walked through the door, and everyone would clap. You know what that was like? That was a baptism service, mm-hmm. right? There, there was this, this idea that this is, gay sex is not something that I do, it's who I am. I'm defined by my desires. And that's why this is such an extraordinarily difficult issue to talk about, because you can't say love the sin and hate the sinner, because I am who I am and how I want to express myself sexually. That is my true identity. And so with that, there is a, there is a real difficulty, because we are called to proclaim the gospel. Right? We are called, according to 1 Peter 3.15, to... In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet to do it with gentleness and respect, right? Now, it used to be when I was a Christian in the 90s, and I would say I was a Christian, people would say that's a good thing, right? You know what? I'm glad he became a Christian. You know, I had an uncle who was hooked on drugs and everything like that, and he became a Christian and it was the best thing that happened for him. I'm not interested, but good for you. Right, that was, can you verify that older generation? That, that was a mindset, good for you, just don't push it upon me. But nowadays you mention that you're a Christian, it's like you're siding with Mordor, right? You have gone dark. You have become an enemy and part of the oppression that has tormented so many homosexual LGBTQ youths, right? Right, you are responsible for their suicides. Their bloods are on their hands. And the only way our society is gonna be inclusive and accepting and affirming is if you all change your minds. Does that make sense? And so it's an extra hostile uh, environment. And I think we all know that. We, we all know that. And, and some people seem so far gone. How do you argue with them? Now, now, do you guys have any gay friends or family members? Raise your hand if you do, right? I mean, yeah, and, and I will just say this. You know, many homosexuals are lovely people, right? They, have, they know what it's like to be excluded. They know what it's like to feel different. They often have a, a large measure of, of compassion. A lot of them are sad and they're depressed. You know what I'm saying? So I, I, really, I really feel for them, right? But they are deceived. They think that the solution to their problem, their trauma, their pain, their anguish is for everybody else to accept them. But the real solution for them is for the Lord to accept them, right? And we want them to be accepted by the Lord and to show them the way of freedom, the way of salvation, that they are made, they are much more than their sexual desires and impulses, right? So how do you talk about this? I remember talking to my good friend Joshua Smith, Malachi's dad, and, and he was a missionary for years in, a, in Mexico City, and he lived in, in probably the most liberal segment of that city. Is that right? Probably. 
if not the most liberal, maybe like two minutes walking. Yeah, and so it's actually a center where there are a lot of, a lot of homosexuals. It'd be like ministering in Manhattan or maybe San Francisco. And so he had to have these discussions all the time. And I asked him, so, so how do you engage with people on this topic? And this is what he told me. He said, I would tell them, you have been made in the image of God. That means you are fearfully and wonderfully made. It is awesome. That's why you're precious. That's why I'm opposed to all forms of bullying. Because you have a dignity that's been given to you by God. Now, people love that message, right? But then he turns around and says, because you've been made in the image of God, this God, whose image you bear, has some expectations on you. He has, um, he, he has a calling for you that, that's married to that. And so as we look at this biblical view of, of sexuality, we're going to talk about one of the most important worldview-shaping truths of Scripture, and that is, what does it mean to be made in the image of God, okay? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? And I have just kind of a two-point outline. One is you are made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God. And then secondly, you have a responsibility as an image bearer. So you are made in the image of God, and you have a responsibility as an image bearer. And this is the tactic I want to take. I, what I could do is I can go through the six clobber verses, right, and just show you how those teach that homosexual expression is wrong in every case. I could do that. But I think what I want to do today is I want to give more of a positive case for heterosexual marriage. That the whole Bible teaches about the goodness of a one-man, one-woman <coughs> expression of marriage. And that is image bearers, marriage is key to perpetuating image bearers throughout the generations. Okay? The whole Bible is really, I, I'm going to say this, is a book about marriage. Now, you guys might get defensive and stuff. You might never marry. And I understand Jesus never married. It's not exclusively about marriage, although I will say Jesus is married, but not in the way that you might think, right? So when you look at the full testimony of Scripture, sexual ethics is governed by the concept that you are made in the image of God, you have a calling as God's image bearers to be part of making more image bearers, and to do it in a way that is approved by the God whose image we bear. Okay, so let's look at this, this first part, okay? You are made in the image of God. Okay, so let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. First book of the Bible, go ahead and open it up. And Genesis is interesting. Do you guys know who wrote Genesis? Who wrote Genesis? Moses. Moses wrote it. Do you guys know when he wrote Genesis? What are we going to say? It was probably, uh, some people speculate that all of it was written when they're about to enter the promised land, okay? So they're about to go into the promised land, and one organizing concept of Israel, right? Israel, do you know why it's named Israel? Who is Israel? Jacob became Israel, and then he had how many sons? Twelve sons. So Israel is really a family structure, right? It's a family of families. And so as as Moses writes this book to this family of families, 
He begins it with the creation of a family and shows how family is intrinsic to creation. Okay, so we read about the creation of man and woman in Genesis 127. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So notice, God made man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. There's an important truth that God wants you to know, right? That man, male and female, was created in the image of God. And so what does that mean? Well, there's several nuances to it. For one, to be made in the image of God means that you represent God to his creation. Now, have you guys ever seen Tom Cruise? In person? You've seen his image, right? We all know what he looks like because we've seen his image even if we haven't seen him. Right now, when you look at, let's say, the ancient Near East, when some king would conquer some new territory, he would actually erect a statue of himself. And that was his image. And what that suggested was, I reign over this space. Okay? So God created man in his own image to basically rule the earth. So man represents God. Now, this kind of helps us to understand why murder is wrong, right? After uh, Moses, I'm not Moses, wrong, you know, ancient patriarch. When Noah leaves the ark, there's a, there's a reset where he tells, God tells him to be fruitful and multiply, rule and, you know, subdue the earth. And then he says this in Genesis 9, 5 through 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it from man. From his fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now, this is the logic of capital punishment. When you assault a man or a woman, you assault God. You are taking the life of the image who this person bears. An assault on man is an assault on God. Does that make sense? That's the logic of it. That is why human beings have intrinsic worth. We are different from everyone else. We bear the image of God. And that is why we should be against all bullying or lynching or any harm, real actual harm that is done to to homosexuals because we care about them because they are made in the image of God. We are for them because of that. Now, that is the the first truth, right? They are made in the image of God. We represent God, right? We project his image. But secondly, there is a a certain equipping, right? We not only project his image, project his authority. He gives us a, a call in 128. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish, of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth, right? So he wants us to colonize this planet, right? I was reading a a biography of uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder right now, and it's really interesting where there was a push with Manifest Destiny, right, to, to colonize and have white settlers go all over the prairie to claim it for themselves. It was often a form of very subtle and slow warfare, right? If you have your citizens kind of spread 
and inhabit and take over the place, then you can claim it for yourself. And that's really God's design for humanity. There is a big planet. He starts with two people. He wants his people to spread throughout the earth. Now, to do that effectively, you have to rule and subdue the earth, right? And that implies uh, certain skills and abilities. Now, if you ever go to a zoo, you might hear about how smart an orangutan is, right? And why are they smart? Because they can do more when they see bananas, right? And we think, man, that, that orangutan's a genius. <laughs> Never mind the fact that he's living in a cage that we built. He was transported from Southeast Asia on planes or boats that we built. You can read about the orangutan in these little symbols that we write down and that we have taught people how to decipher and read and understand. I mean, human beings, the gap between us and the nearest animal, it is, it's amazing. I mean, just look around at this place and everything that we built, electricity, light, the engineering, the, the, the heating, the air, having this recording device that we can listen to what I say later. I, I have printed this off on paper. You think about where paper comes from? I mean, everything we do, we are technologically advanced. We are different from everyone else, and we have been custom-made to do exactly what the Lord wanted us to do, which is to rule and subdue the earth by being fruitful and multiplying. Okay? Now, here's another a third observation. Okay, not only do we have authority, do we have ability, but each of us has been custom-made to fulfill our responsibility. God has made man in his own image, male and female. He created them. Right? Their, their anatomy is part of their identity. You see, one thing when you look at uh, the modern thought, there is this idea that who you really are is who you feel and perceive yourself to be. Your, your body is almost incidental to the real you, right? And I think you see this most clearly in the transgender ideology, right? Now, it used to be if a biological male thought he was a female, you'd give him therapy because he would change his mind, right? But nowadays, it's like if a biological male feels himself to be a female, he'll go through surgery to change his body to match his mind. And so there's almost like the, this body is a husk, it's a carcass, it, it's, it's something that's incidental to who you really are, and you can surgically enhance it or change it to match who you imagine yourself to be. But the scripture doesn't know that type of disjunction. Your body is who you are. For instance, David says in Psalm 20 or 32:3, "For I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long." Notice when he kept silent, he felt it in his bones. Proverbs 17:22, "A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. You know, some of the words that, um, you know, for, for emotions, right? Like compassion in the New Testament, the word is intestines. I mean, you ever have that feeling of compassion? Where do you feel? You kind of feel it in your gut, right? Or when you feel sad, you have a broken heart, right? They, they understood this biological connection between our emotions and our soul that our bodies and our souls are intertwined. And what's interesting is that throughout scripture, there are different rules for men and women. Not to get too explicit here, but in Leviticus, there's purity laws for women who are on their period, right? That would be an example of it. In uh, Ephesians chapter five, um, 
men and women have different callings, right? Your biology determines your calling, and it determines what you're called to do. So, now let's say I were to um, you know, stab your car with a screwdriver. I don't know why I do it. I have anger issues. Apparently, I need some help. <laughs> Did I damage you? I damaged your property, right? Now, if I were to stab your hand with a screwdriver, did I damage your property? No. I damaged you. Do you see what I'm saying? We intuitively know that when I hurt your body, I hurt you. Your body is not your property, it's you. But that doesn't mean you're not property, you're actually property of somebody else, okay? Because you have been made in the image of God. He owns you. You belong to him. I use this illustration when I uh, share the gospel. Let's say I were to, uh, you had some sort of artistic genius. Actually, Jack showed me a scrap. He's a very good artist, by the way. But let's say Jack, he decides that he's going to paint a picture of a beautiful sunset. Okay? So he's painting the sunset. He's very proud of it. He colors it. It looks more than just paint by numbers. It's a work of art. It actually looks like a photograph. And he invites me over to his place and, you know, to, you know, feed me Doritos and, and Pop-Tarts and, you know, college man hospitality. <laughs> and as he's toasting my Pop-Tart, I go ahead and take his painting and I go out to the country and I use it for target practice. Would it be upset at me? Yes. Well, what did I do? You just ruined it. Ruined it. It's larceny. It's And why, why is it stealing? Because it's his property, right? Is it fair to say that if you create something, you own it? So if God created you, what kind of rights and privileges does he have over you? Right? And he created you body and soul. It was always, you are a package deal. One more thing about this. 1 John 4, 2 through 3. And to give you a little bit of context, um, the apostles go into warfare, theological warfare, over this notion that Jesus did not rise in bodily form. The Greeks at the time had this idea that matter was evil and the spirit and the immaterial was good, and so they could not figure out how why, or why God would resurrect a physical body from the dead and take it to heaven. And this is what John says. 1 John 4, 2 through 3. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come into flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now has come already. Right? You, mankind has created body and soul. You've been created body and soul by God, whose image you bear, and get this, you do not belong to yourself. You do not belong to yourself. This is one of the most important truths for sexual ethics. Your body is not yours. You are a steward of your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Paul is correcting some licentiousness in the church in Corinth. Corinth was kind of like Las Vegas of the Roman Empire, by the way. A man was sleeping with his father's wife. I mean, all kinds of immorality. And this is what he says. 1 Corinthians 9, 6, 6 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, 
For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This means you can't glorify God with your soul and not your body. You glorify God in your body. Body and soul is all together. Now, some people might object. Well, Pastor Dave, when my grandmother died and I saw her body lying in the coffin, we all knew that her soul was in heaven, right? Doesn't that teach that there's a separation between the soul and the body? Well, it does, but that's the tragedy of death, right? The tragedy of death is it separates the soul from the body. And when Jesus comes back, what's going to happen to all the bodies? They will be rejoined with their spirits. And that will be when things are made right. Right? The resurrection itself points to you are who you are, body and soul. Does that make sense? You're made in the image of God. As an image bearer, you are to reflect his priorities for your life. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are specially created to rule and subdue the earth. God has given you the equipment to do so, both mentally and biologically. And that is where we kind of turn the corner to the sexual ethic, right? We're going to be talking about the equipment to be fruitful and multiply as we talk about our responsibility as image bearers. Okay, so let's go back to Genesis 128. God blessed them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, now the year was 1969. Nobody except for I think Steve Standwick was alive by then. I won't ask you, Pam. Um, but the Russians were in, Russians in the U.S., they were in what, what we call the space race, Right? 1955, the Russians managed to send a satellite into orbit before the U.S. did. In 1959, the Russians sent the first man into space before the U.S. did. And this was a national embarrassment. And so we started a program that we were going to put a man on the moon. And in that fateful July, 1969, Neil Armstrong stepped foot on the moon. And to remember the iconic photograph, you have an astronaut with what? An American flag. That's right, Russians. That's right. We own this. Yeah, we own this place. And that's exactly it, right? There's planting a flag. We own this place. Didn't India just get to the moon? They did, but that has nothing to do with my sermon. So we own this place. We own this place. And so the idea is, as, as mankind spreads, whereas we're fruitful and multiply, with each successive human being man, made in the image of God, God's saying, I own this place, right? And the great tragedy of the fall is that we have turned away against him, but that's why we will have a redeemed humanity, a new heaven, a new earth, and there'll be little image bearers all over the place. But all this to say, God has an active vested interest in the reproduction of his image bearers. And he has done it in such a way to cause the flourishing of the little ones of whose image we bear, right? Now you look at the, the human body, right? Anybody in, let's say, nursing, medical professions wanting to go in there, you know that there's different body systems, right? You have the digestive system, the pulmonary system, the nervous system. All of those are self-contained in the human body. Every system except for one system, and that is the reproductive system. The reproductive system 
takes two individuals, specifically male and female, to come together to make new life. Isn't that kind of a, a, a crazy thought? That we don't reproduce, you know, we don't just go into this, you know, dark room, crawl up into a ball, and then kind of like pop up another human being, right? It's, have you ever seen gremlins, right? <laughs> you put them in water and a little, yeah, it doesn't work that way. We're not asexual human beings, right? Male and females have to come together. Life is generated through a, a heterosexual unit exclusively. And people will say, well, what about technology? Right? When you have a gay couple, it's not like you have sperm and sperm and they make a human. You're not, it's not like you could take an ovum and an ovum and make a human. You have to have one from each. They, they borrow the heterosexual union to make and gestate new life. It is impossible without both genders participating in some way. So, God wants to make new life. And he has designed it in a way that we don't reproduce asexually. He puts Adam in, a in the garden and says, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. He's like, all right, I'm going to do that. And he looks and he notices that every animal is partnered off, but he's not. Then God said, Genesis 2.18, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so he creates woman who is made in the image of God with some critical differences, Right? We all know what those are. And then after this, he says in Genesis 2, 23 through 24, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, one flesh is an allusion to the act of intimacy, right? It, it is the act of marriage that, that fuses man and woman together and basically makes them the, the married couple. And this is something and an idea that's actually endorsed by Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 19, four through five, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now what's interesting is they become one flesh before they technically reproduce, right? What God is doing is through the act of marriage, they, they, they become more than just roommates. They become more than just friends. It's a special, unique relationship that is for the two of them alone. And that is why it's important that husbands and wives come together and rehearse the act that makes them husband and wife over and over and over again. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 4, the husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does, right? They belong to each other. They are one flesh, right? That is the unique special relationship shared between the husband and wife. And, and this has multiple purposes to it. For one, uh, it's a way of just bringing joy, unique joy to the married couple. Proverbs 5, 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. It's also a way of, of protecting the couple from 
sexual infidelity. 1 Corinthians 7.5, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so Satan may not tempt you because of the lack of self-control. So all this to say that there are multiple reasons for the act of marriage, but all of this is really designed around being fruitful and multiplying. And this explains why sexual relations outside of marriage are such a violation, because it is a violation of that one flesh union. It's a violation of that soul bond. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And in my opinion, 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 18, is probably the most important text to define the Christian sexual ethic. All right? Okay, with all that background of being fruitful and multiply, becoming one flesh, developing this special bond, this is what we read in 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 18. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Right, that's what was going on. Some of these men were going off and cavorting with prostitutes. Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined, a prostitute becomes, here's... Here's the, the text. One body or one flesh with her. For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. You see what the sexual union does? He's not married to the prostitute, but they become one flesh. There is a special power to the sexual union that binds you to the other person, even if you're not married. I was a missionary in Hungary. For a couple of years, and, and while I was there, I, I befriended a young man named Greg. He was a, a medical student, and and we had many conversations. And when I met him, his his girlfriend dumped him, and he's at a very low point. And and so we talked about the gospel, and we talked about the sexual ethic, and and after I talked about being one flesh and what that means, his eyes just lit up, and and he said, "You know, Dave, when I was with my girlfriend." And when we were intimate, it was like there was this bridge that was built between us. And Hungary, if you've ever been there, is known for beautiful bridges. He says it was a beautiful bridge. It was, it was our bridge. And we went back and forth, visiting each other's soul in between. And then when she broke up, it's like that bridge was broken. And now I just have half a bridge sticking out of my chest that doesn't match anybody else's bridge. I thought, man, these Hungarians, they, they're insightful. But, but that's true. You see, the, God has designed sexual intimacy to create an intimacy, to create a binding relationship so that when a man and woman come together, they have this unique soul bridge that causes them to stick together so that when children enter that union and enter that family, it's in the context of a loving relationship so that they could be raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord, right? The, the structure of marriage, right, is, is, designed, is designed to produce little image bearers. Now, one of the objections is, well, it doesn't always, right? A marriage does not start, okay? A marriage does not start when you have a baby, right? A marriage starts when you consummate the union. That is the beginning point. And that structure 
doesn't always lead to winning results. For instance, you can have the, the structure of a football team, right? And not win any games. As a KU football fan, I know that pain. Right? <laughs> the Broncos. The Broncos, Not yeah. The Broncos. <laughs> right? You can have the structure of that. But does the fact that you never win the football game mean that you're no longer a football team? No. Not at all, right? So just because you're unsuccessful doesn't mean that you don't have that structure. You can have the structure of a marriage, but not successfully have children. What gay marriage does is they, they're like the, the, the tennis player who demands to be part of the college football playoffs. It's a completely different structure. Gay marriage has to be qualified by gay because it's not the same as a marriage. It doesn't have the structure of marriage. It's inherently different. They can never do what God designed traditional marriage to do. You see, if the structure is there, you can go through life maybe later on where maybe a wife dies and another one is married to continue this nurturing environment to raise children, right? That is the, the structure that God designed. So when you look at all of these clobber verses and everything, the positive picture of Marriage is pointed out in the structure of marriage of man and woman valuing each other and coming together to raise new life. This is why people who hold to gay marriage, I'm just going to say it, they don't really care about kids. They care about their individual expression. They care about themselves and their identity. But are they really thinking about what's best for children? And, and for some of you who might have been raised in one chair, parent household. You, I'm sure your, your mom or your dad did a heroic job, right, of raising you. But what would you want for your kids, right? Wouldn't you want them to have a mom and a dad who are engaged and involved, who truly love each other, who have that soul bridge with one another, and they together raise you? Or you raise your kids? Wouldn't that be best? Right? And, and that's what God wants as well. The other thing, too, is... One thing that gay marriage does, it diminishes the value of the opposite gender. Right? If your whole world is male, right, and you are married to a man and you're a man, you, you categorically reject females. They don't need to be a part of your life. The same thing can be said for females and lesbian marriages where it's a rejection categorically of men. And in this divisive age, right, of, you know, criticizing each other, seeing them as power. There's a division there that is not good for society. See, marriage forces men and women to come together. And when men and women do not come together, you're going to see this. There is serious discussion about population declines. It's like people all of a sudden figured out that not having babies is a bad thing. Right? To survive as a community and society... You may not need to fulfill your sexual desires to survive as an individual, but we do need to do it to survive as a society, right? To pass on to the next generation. There needs to be a generation. What does generation mean? It means you generate human beings. So all of this is part of God's grand design, but there's also another element too. There's a spiritual element. 
See, God could have created us asexually, right? So that we don't need anyone else to reproduce. But he created men and women differently, forcing them to come together because there's a larger message that he wants to give. In Ephesians 5, 31 to 33, Paul says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Sound familiar? But then he says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. Men and women are different. They come together, and this is actually analogous to Christ and the church. Remember when I said that Jesus is not single? He never took an earthly wife, but he did take a heavenly wife. You know, as the, as the husband in the relationship, he sacrificed. He gave, up, he gave up himself to protect his wife from her own sin and the wrath of God. In rising from the dead, he's able to redeem his wife, and she submits to him joyfully, right? And so the picture of the marriage is the husband represents Christ, who loves and serves and sacrifices his wife, and the wife responds by joyful submission and trust. Right? That is the image of Christ and the church. We see later on, Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage. There's the word again. Marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. You see, you can tell in heaven who's the bride and, and who's the groom, right? There is a distinction between the two. One serves the other. They have complementary roles. And that is why God created mankind, male and female, to picture the ultimate reality. That's why same-sex marriage is not a marriage. It's not a marriage. The biblical sexual ethic is that all sexual expression is to be conducted in the confines of a marriage that's been ordained by God. Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Right? Any expression outside of that. Adultery, fornication, homosexuality, all of that is contrary to God's teaching. So when we look at these six clobber passages, all that they do is just say the negative of what this says positively. Sexual immorality is a violation of God's design. Yeah, and some people will say, you know what? You don't understand, Pastor Dave. I was born this way. I was born this way. Well, what I would say is this. If you want to go with the whole born this way argument, if you have a Y chromosome, you are born that way, right? If you don't have a Y chromosome, you are also born that way. Your body is teleological. You know what I mean by that? Teleological talks about a purpose. Like when, when the teleological purpose of a fork is to stab food, right? You cannot eat broth with a fork. It's not teleologically designed for that. 
And I think part of the reason why so many people who struggle with these desires and everything feel so unfulfilled and down this is what they're doing just doesn't make sense. It is just wrong. It's contrary to nature, and God has something better for them. Now, it could be a lifetime of just serving the Lord. Perhaps you don't get married, and you know what? Jesus wasn't married. Jeremiah wasn't married. Paul wasn't married. But when you become a Christian, all of us will enjoy that marital relationship, right? In heaven. But we can still serve him now. But you can still support and uphold that. Secondly, when you want to say that I was born this way, you're detaching who you are from your body. And your self-perception, scripturally speaking, what does the Bible say about our self-perception? Well, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Right? Do you need to trust? Your body is objective. How you feel about yourself is not. Does that make sense? So do you change your body or you change your mind? And what does scripture tell us to do in Romans 12, 1 through 2? Is to renew your mind. Renew your mind. To change your mind. Yeah, and, and that's the hope that I have for you. I know in a room this size, there's a number of you probably struggle with same-sex attraction. And I would say this, that your identity is not what's defined by what, who or what you're attracted to. It's defined by God who made you in his image. And if you are a believer, it's defined by you being, being, a, um, being a Christian, being placed in Christ in the union with the Christ. You're loved by the Father. You're so much more than these desires inside of you. Right. Our desires come and go, and desires can be changed. They can be transformed. It might take a while. It does require some sanctification. But who you are isn't defined by what's inside of you, but by what's outside of you. And when you become a Christian, you are in Christ, right? Mm -hmm. And then he changes what's inside of you by giving you his Holy Spirit and changing and transforming you. But you have to agree with him and just say, you know what? I don't belong to me anymore. I never did. When I became a Christian, I recognized that I belong to the Lord. He has my heart, and he has my body. And what do you want me to do with my body? Lord, you tell me, and I'm, I'm at your service. So, friend, you are made in the image of God. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. That is why you have so much dignity. That's why everyone in this room and outside of this room, that's why people in the gay community have dignity, because they're made in the image of God. But being made in the image of God implies a certain sacred responsibility that you obey the will of the God whose image you bear. Let's pray. Father, we come before you grateful for the clear teaching on this topic. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who might struggle with same-sex attraction, Lord, that they will just have hope that you can change and renew them and transform them, and that that will be one of their heart desires. I pray for other people here, Lord, that they will just understand that the Christian sexual ethic forbids more than just homosexuality, but other... Um, expressions as well and that they will really be serious about pursuing purity in their relationships and in their hearts. I pray that as we engage this world on this topic that you will help us to do so winsomely, that we will um, just tell the truth and show the beauty of what you want for us and what it could look like. Father, just sanctify us, help us to embrace it, love it, and promote it. In Christ's name, amen.